turn to Second Chronicles, Second Chronicles chapter 10. And uh, I want to invite you to join with me in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and that it is sure, more sure certainly than the ground in which we stand. It never fades, it never shifts, it will never pass away, and it will always accomplish that which you have spoken it to do. And Lord, you have promised that your word goes from your mouth to convert those you have died for, to warn them, to bring them back to you, and to encourage them, and to shape them, and to sanctify them, and to conform them to the image of your Son. And so we're just trusting that promise right now as your word is proclaimed, and we we pray you'd be faithful to it. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. You can have a seat. I want to open with, uh, with a question. What kind of a king, what kind of a king is the Lord Jesus Christ? What kind of a Lord is he? How would you describe him? How, would, how is he toward his people? We, we certainly know that he is faithful. We know that he's true. We know that he is holy. We've talked about how he is perfectly powerful and sovereign. He's sovereign over kings and he's sovereign over the weather. He's sovereign over the rising and falling of governments and empires. We've heard that he is fiercely protective of his people, of his church. We know that he loves righteousness. We know that he has wrath towards sin. We know that he will destroy those set who have set themselves against his reign. We know that he will crush his enemies. We know he disciplines his own, not to destroy them, but in affection and in love to spare them from destruction. And we need to realize that he is the potter and we are the clay. And that means he can demand anything of us. We're not in a position to negotiate with him. He, as king, can put burdens on the people under his reign, under his sovereignty. And so then we can ask, what, what burdens does this king place on his people? What are his expectations? How does he reign over his own redeemed people? And so friends, if you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, if you've not acknowledged your sin and how you are deserving of condemnation, if you're not trusted in his life in your place, his death for your sins and his resurrection from the dead to forgive you of your sins and to reconcile you to God. If, if, you have not, if you've not known the Lord Jesus Christ in this way, he still is Lord. But he's not your redeemer. Unless and until you turn from your sin and trust in his life and his death and resurrection from the dead. And God's law still condemns you for your sin and, and shows your guilt. And rather than Christ being your substitute, the payment for your sin, Christ will come to be your judge. Because of the weight of your sin and the truth that you've not kept God's law, that truth hangs over you. And because of that truth, he will condemn you to hell justly. And you will have no plea. You will have no call that you are not, you are not deserving of that and he has no authority to do that. And so we'd urge you to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
and be saved. But now I want to turn to you, dear Christians. We need to be reminded of the heart and of the goodness of the reign of Jesus, the son of David over us. Or we are going to feel the crushing burdens on our shoulders, which the cross has freed us from. Or we might actually put burdens on other Christians, which their Lord would forbid us from putting on them. And we're going to rob ourselves of, and others of rest and joy and of the sweet delight of enjoying Christ, our God and Savior. And today, as we're going through the book of Second Chronicles, we come to the end of Solomon's reign, the first son of David, and the beginning of the reign of the second son of David, Rehoboam. Now, these events happened roughly 900 years before the Lord Jesus Christ was born. These men are the ancestors of the Lord Jesus Christ and the throne which he inherited as the throne, as the son of David is inherited from these men. And we're going to see why they failed and why the heart and rule of the Lord Jesus Christ is much better than theirs. Our hearts are constantly being torn, not only by people trying to put expectations on us that don't belong on us, but our hearts are also torn by false Views of the Lord Jesus Christ that frankly look a lot more like Solomon and Rehoboam than they do their great son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And dear friends, dear Christians, these passages in the word of God are meant to be sweet words of correction and stabilization and comfort in those storms and in those pulls on your heart. So let's begin by reading from 2 Chronicles chapter 10. We're going to Go right into chapter 11, and we'll stop after a little while into chapter 11. So 2 Chronicles chapter 10, this is the word of the Lord. Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had come to Shechem to make him king. And as soon as Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, heard of it, for he was in Egypt, where he had fled from King Solomon, then Jeroboam returned from Egypt, and, and they sent and called him. And Jeroboam and all Israel came and said to Rehoboam, your father made our yoke heavy. Now therefore lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke on us and we will serve you. And he said to them, come again to me in three days. So the people went away. Then King Rehoboam took counsel with the old men who had stood before Solomon, his father, while he was yet alive saying, how do you advise me to answer the people? And they said to him, if you will be good to this people. And please them and speak good words to them. Then they will be your servants wherever. But he abandoned the counsel that the old men gave him and took counsel with the young men who had grown up with him and stood before him. And he said to them, what do you advise that we answer this people who have said to me, lighten the, the yoke that your father put on us? And the young men who had grown up with him said to him, thus shall you speak to the people who said to you, your father made our yoke heavy, but you lighten it for us. Thus shall you say to them, my little finger is thicker than my father's thighs. And now, whereas my father laid on you a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. So Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam the third day, as the king said, come to me again on the third day. 
And the king answered them harshly. And forsaking the counsel of the old men, King Rehoboam spoke to them according to the counsel of the young men, saying, My father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to it. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. So the king did not listen to the people, for it was a turn of affairs brought about by God, that the Lord might fulfill his word, which he spoke by Ahijah the Shilonite to Jeroboam the son of Nebat. And when all Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, the people answered the king, what portion do we have in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. Each to your own tents, O Israel. Look now to your own house, David. So all Israel went to their tents. But Rehoboam reigned over the people of Israel who lived in the cities of Judah. Then King Rehoboam sent Hadaram, who was the taskmaster over the forced labor, and the people of Israel stoned him to death with stones. And King Rehoboam quickly mounted his chariot to flee to Jerusalem. So Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. When Rehoboam came to Jerusalem, he assembled the house of Judah and Benjamin, 180,000 chosen warriors to fight against Israel to restore the kingdom to Rehoboam. But the word of the Lord came to Shemaiah, the man of God, say to Rehoboam, son of Solomon, king of Judah, and all of Israel and, Ju and Judah and Benjamin. Thus says the Lord, you shall not go up to fight against your relatives. Return every man to his home, for this thing is from me. So they listened to the word of the Lord and returned and did not go against Jeroboam. Thus far the word of the Lord. That brings us to our first point. The kingdom of Israel was divided because of the sin of the son of David. So the most glorious kingdom handed over to Solomon from David is divided at the very next baton pass. How could this happen? If Israel's hope was vested in the person on the throne of David, as God promised that their hope would be vested in whoever is sitting on the throne of David. What did the son of David do wrong here? That Jesus, the great son of David, would then do right. The chronicler gives us a hint as to what happened. You see in, verse, uh, in chapter 10, verse 2, we're introduced to a man named Jeroboam who returns from exile in Egypt and he leads the people of Israel in their frustrated confrontation of King Rehoboam. And we're expected to know who he is. In verse 15 of chapter 10, we're told that Rehoboam's foolish response to the requests of his people was itself a fulfillment of a prophecy that the Lord had, gave, had given to Jeroboam through the prophet Ahijah. Again, we're expected to know this. In, in chapter 11, verse 4, the word of the Lord comes to King Rehoboam, son of Solomon, as he's getting ready to wage civil war against his own people to crush this rebellion. And the Lord tells him not to do it because this thing is from me. All these events and the, are the fulfillment of a prophecy. And God has steered these actions and decisions himself to bring about the division of the people. Now, why did the Lord do this? It was because of the sin of Solomon, the son of David. God's people would divide over the sin of the son of David. Now, if we return to, if we turned right now to 1 Kings 11, which gives us more details, we would hear of the sins of Solomon. How his sinful decision to have multiple wives, and not only that, to marry wives that didn't love the Lord, this, this, and his desire to get power from Egypt, 
all these things led Solomon to be enslaved to sin, to essentially become a bondservant of idols. Solomon built altars and temples to some of the worst religions and the worst idols that human history ever imagined. And then he worshiped at those altars. And so the Lord speaks to Solomon and he promises to tear the kingdom apart and to give it to his servant. And then God sends a prophet to Solomon's servant, Jeroboam, and told him he's going to be the one to receive that torn garment of a kingdom. But he's only going to get some of it because God is going to keep his covenant to Solomon's father, David, that a son of David would always be the heir to his people. Now we see the cracks forming in Solomon's reign as he's building up this structure. And what you see is that any pressure, if there's any crack in the son of David, if there's any crack in the righteousness of the man sitting on the throne of the son of David, then any pressure is going to expose that and destroy the whole kingdom. If Israel was to have a king who reigns on their behalf and whose reign and righteousness would count for them, he'd have to be a man without a shadow of sin. And brothers and sisters, the great son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ, born nine centuries later, the heir to David and Solomon and Rehoboam, was just like us, just like his brothers, just like his ancestors in every respect, except without sin. His kingdom will stand forever. And the hope of his people who stand, who, who belong to him is based on his perfect holiness and righteousness. And therefore it is sure and it is stable. Even if the whole world and the ground around them is shifting sand. The sin of the son of David resulted in pain and sorrow and judgment for his people, but the perfect holiness of the son of David, of a holy son of David, will result in eternal life and security and stability for his people when all the nations and kingdoms rage around them and nations rise and fall and empires totter. They will fall because they have sin knit into them, but the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, the perfect son of David, will endure forever. And those who trust in him, who rest their souls in him, will not shake because his kingdom is forever. And so their souls with anxiety can rest in the Lord their God. Because their Lord Jesus Christ is perfect and his kingdom will not crumble because the kingdom of Israel was divided because the sin of the son of David, but the Lord's people will not be divided because of the righteousness of the great son of David. That brings us to our second point. And that is this, the kingdom of Israel was divided through the young folly of the son of David. So we know why the kingdom divided. We know why it's crumbling. But now we get to look at how it crumbles, right? The why is Solomon's sin, and now we see the how is actually Rehoboam's sin. What did the Lord use to divide that people? And I wonder if you noticed it was Rehoboam's young folly, young folly. Now, when this ultimatum is brought to Rehoboam, 
his wise old counselors, they get to work. And they tell him what he should do. They give him good counsel. Did you see that? They give him godly wisdom. Speak a good word to this people. But instead of taking it, he, he looks to find people who will give him advice that he wants. So he turns to his young friends who grew up around him and stood before him, basically answered to him. And they give him terrible advice. And he rejects the wisdom of old men and he embraces the foolishness of young men. And I want you to know that this is a clear old versus young going on here. And it will continue. If you read the book of 2 Chronicles and fill out the whole history of Israel, you're going to see that this happens over and again. The sons of David, which turn away from old wisdom, they end up squandering what wonderful things the Lord God did for the nation when they treasured old wisdom. And it's not a quality of age per se. It doesn't mean that old men are wise and young men are foolish. It is rather to say that wisdom itself is old. Wisdom is older than the hills. Because wisdom comes from God and God is eternal. And God is never changing. Some men who are young cherish old wisdom. And some old men reject it. Some, old, some young men want to be old and some old men want to be young. Now, the wisdom of God never changes. God's word never changes. God's character never changes. And we are fools to think that we can ignore God's unchanging wisdom and design for the world and not destroy ourselves. And we can see this in the pagan culture. But I think it's more important to see it in ourselves, in ourselves, in the church. We're drawn to new ideas, new ways of looking at God, new ways of looking at the gospel new concepts of church and new ways of evaluating if a, a church is pleasing to God, new ways of evaluating who would be an effective elder. Now that's not to say that people in the past were always more faithful. The problem is often we don't look far enough into the past. We look to the 1950s or we look to the 1850s, but those men had the same inclination that we do and that Rehoboam did. We're not going far enough back. Go past the 1950s. Go past the 1850s. Go to when the Lord Jesus Christ established his church and look at the wisdom that he laid down there because his wisdom is unchanging. Now, age does have help. It does help us in a sense because it gives us the ability to look back on the years and see what happens when people cling to God's wisdom. And what happens when they foolishly try to improve on it? We can see God's wisdom is proven time and again, that old wisdom. Now, the Lord Jesus Christ, when he ascended his throne, was 33 years old. Rehoboam was 41. Technically, the Lord Jesus Christ in his humanity was younger. But if we turn to the book of Revelation, we get a vision of who the Lord Jesus is. You can see him more clearly than your eyes could see. You can see his character and his attributes and his personality described in a vision. And I want us to turn to Revelation chapter one, and we're going to see how he is described in this vision. He's described in very descriptive ways, very apocalyptic and prophetic ways. And I want you to look at what color the man's hair is. Revelation 1 verse 12. 
Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands was one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the, th- the sun shining in full strength. This Jewish man, actually 33 years old in his humanity, has white hair. He's got old man hair on his head to describe his character and his attributes because his wisdom is unchanging. It is the wisdom which established the universe. It is the unchanging wisdom of God himself. And what does that mean for us practically? It's not some like memory thing. We know what color the Lord Jesus' hair is in the vision. What does this mean for us? This is meant to shape our souls and our hearts. It means for us, brothers and sisters, that we don't need to consider ourselves fools for trusting the word of Christ. The commands and promises of Christ, even if they seem outdated, because he didn't establish the church on new wisdom, and new ideas that would fail, maybe fail when tested. We are safe in his wise and unchanging wisdom. He is all powerful, but he's also all wise. Whatever wisdom we have is younger than his. And we can't see the moment. In the moment, we can't see that his ways are wise. And when that happens, it shouldn't surprise us. Now we see that his wisdom and we are to see his wisdom and humbly subject our own wisdom to his because his is older than ours. And in Ephesians 4, we get this picture of a church and it says, if we picture our church as a, as, as a man, we ought to want it to look like an old man. Not reacting to new ideas and waves. Not trying to figure out things in the moment with our own wisdom. Not like a hip young man, but like a wise old man. That also means, brothers and sisters, that we can expect to be divided See, if it was the young folly of the son of David that divided his people, we can expect that we can to be divided as a church. If our unity is based on something other than the ancient truths of the Lord Jesus Christ, not things which in our youth as a church we feel are true or are probably true, but what is certainly true and has been clearly true for hundreds of years. New ideas come up and, we're, and we're, we're so prone to taking them in one way or the other, left or right, to, to make a division on these new ideas. Foolishness. Everything other than that, what the word of God speaks might turn out to be right or wrong because we are incomplete and short-sighted in our wisdom. And we cannot see beyond our geographic location or our little tiny piece in the timeline that is redemptive history. And so for the unity of God's people to be real, gospel unity, it must be based on the eternal wisdom of the son of David. It brings us to our third point. The kingdom of Israel was divided, yes, through folly, a young folly, but the kingdom of Israel was divided through the heavy burdens of the son of David. Solomon, we had earlier uh, learned in earlier passage, he didn't pe- put the people of Israel to forced labor. 
But he did put incredible pressure on them to serve him, to accomplish his plans, temple building plans, palace building plans, storehouse city building plans, military city building plans, seafaring plans. He put a burden on them. A yoke was the piece of wood that's fitted to the neck and shoulders of an ox to be able to pull burdens. And Solomon... Solomon as king over the Israelites, he, he expected them to carry out his desires and plans. He put a, a burden on them. They, there was this expectation they were to follow him. And the fact that they had a yoke or a, a burden to carry from their Lord, their master, there was an expectation to follow him. That was good. The question whether it was burdensome or not. And under Jeroboam, former servant of David, they demand or former servant of Solomon, they demand lighter burdens. In exchange, they promise loyal service to Rehoboam. But I want you to see that Rehoboam doesn't see his messiahship as in the service of the people for their good. He sees it as for his good. He sees his authority as for his good rather than for his people's good. I want you also to see that Solomon built extra temples, didn't he, for his extra gods? And you think he did that by himself? No, he forced his people to do it with him. He put extra burdens that they should never have carried. But the Lord Jesus Christ, whose reign is not corrupted by sin or short-sightedness, it's also not corrupted by him being enslaved to sin. And I want you to hear the glorious results that his reign has for his people, which Roger read for us in part already. Matthew eleven twenty five. 25, we're just going to read to 30. Matthew eleven twenty five. 25, at that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The Lord Jesus here is inviting us to draw our attention back to Rehoboam. Don't think he didn't have this in his mind. He clearly wants us to think of Rehoboam, his ancestor. He wants us to picture that situation where his people are crying out for a merciful Lord, for a merciful. They're not saying we don't want a king. We're not saying you can't tell us what to do. They're saying you can tell us what to do, but please, please be merciful. And he says, I'm not like Rehoboam. My burden is light. My yoke is easy. Make no mistake, brothers and sisters, he is the son of David and he is the Lord of lords and the king of kings. And just like they owed obedience to Rehoboam, so we are owing obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ and we can't really negotiate. What he demands is what he demands. He is Lord. What he says is law. To be a Christian means trusting him and submitting to his reign, submitting to his Authority. He has the right to impose any expectations and any commands and burdens and yokes because we belong to him. 
But what the Lord Jesus Christ is here saying is that to submit to his reign, to embrace his, his yoke on your shoulders is not actually getting a greater load. It's actually to have a lighter load. The foolishness of sin and the lie of the devil to Adam and Eve is that to rebel against the lordship of God is to lighten your load, to make things better. It's not. It is to embrace slavery to sin and self. A cruel master. The Lord is, the Lord Jesus Christ is Lord. But he is a good master and becoming, coming underneath his lordship, submitting to it, is not adding to your burden. It is ironically lightening it. Being free from him, rebelling against him, isn't freedom. It is slavery. Think to the last time you regretted sinning. Why did I do that? In the moment you thought this was great, this is freedom. I am free. I'm going to rebel. Oh, but it is slavery. The Lord Jesus Christ is a good master. Now, the primary way in which the Lord Jesus Christ lightens our load is by carrying them on the cross. He took our guilt and our sin. We have an expectation from God as his creatures to obey his commands. And, Lord, and, and the Lord tells us that none have kept his commands. We are all having that mandate left unmet. We've not met that. And the Lord Jesus Christ lived for 33 years perfectly under the law of God. And he counts it as if it were ours. That obedience, he says, I'll count it to you. And not only that, we have the burden of our punishment hanging over us. Not only do we have the requirement to keep the law of God, we now have the requirement to bear the punishment for breaking it. And that burden too, the Lord Jesus Christ saves us from because on the cross, while well, he gives us his record so that we can be rewarded for it, he takes our record. He takes that burden and he's damned for it on the cross. Oh, Christian, he has taken your burden. To our unbelieving guests, your burden is not taken. He is not your redeemer. You are expected to keep the law of God and you will be expected to bear the punishment for the sins against it. So turn to him in faith, in his death and resurrection, and he will be your burden barrier, bearer. But he also gives good, good burdens. It doesn't mean that we are freed from keeping his law. It means we're freed for keeping his law, which is good. He gives us a good law. He gives good expectations. We see in 1 John chapter 5, 1 John chapter 5, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God we, when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been, been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? We who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ are born of God, born of the Holy Spirit with hearts that are no longer at their core enslaved to sin. We're freed from that slavery of sin's demands on us. 
We've been given new hearts, born of the Spirit, that love the law of God, that love God. And there is this freedom in keeping His commandments. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, His commandments are not burdensome. They're not against joy. They're not against life. Examine them. Which of them are anti-joy? Which of them are anti-life? They're good. He frees us to keep the commandments. And he gives us grace and forgiveness when we sin. His grace is ever present to forgive us and to transform us. And I want you to realize that in the gospels, in the accounts of Jesus's life, every time that phrase son of David is a cry, every time it is met as a cry, it is always in regard for mercy. Mercy. He is eager to give mercy when we sin and we cry out to him for mercy. He's eager to forgive and to transform. You don't have to pull his, or you have to twist his arm. You don't have to force him to do it. He's eager to, he's ready to, because he is merciful toward his people. Rehoboam's yoke and burden for his people were burdensome. And harsh, but the Lord Jesus is easy and light, and he gives rest. This is a reminder also, brothers and sisters, not to add to his commands. There will always be a temptation to add to his commands. As a church or even as individuals, to prove we are the ones who care more about the law of God. To prove we are the ones who care more about Christ, more about the gospel. Maybe to give a test of who a Christian is beyond what the Bible says. Or maybe a test of what is a serious Christian beyond what the Bible says. But I want you to know that this is wicked. This is wicked. It's not more Christian. It's less Christian. It's not making Christ more Lord. It's quite the opposite. It's you attempting to make yourself co-Lord or co-Messiah with him. You may not add to his commands to improve your standing with God. You may not add to his commands when evaluating the commitment of your brothers and sisters. Now, one clear application of this, dear brothers and sisters, that I see is COVID. And I have seen brothers judging the seriousness of the faith of other Christians because others don't think COVID is as serious as they think it is. And I've also seen brothers judging the seriousness of the faith of other Christians because they thought others were taking COVID too seriously. The Apostle Paul would come at us pretty harsh for judging someone else's servants by standards which the master has not given in his word. Unity on something other than the white-haired ancient wisdom from the mouth of the merciful Messiah will be fleeting. And it might feel like a bond You know, this is the people that I have a bond with, the people who see COVID the way I do. It might seem like a bond, but it will crack and crumble like Rehoboam's kingdom did. And it dishonors Christ and it replaces the gospel as unity. It puts dear children of God outside the camp. And here's the irony. It often puts enemies of God inside the camp because it creates a standard of unity you don't need the Holy Spirit for. Dear church, You should feel terrified. If you feel like Ben Shapiro gets you, 
or sees the world more like you than people who love the gospel do. You should feel terrified if you feel like Rachel Maddow gets you or sees the world more like you than those who love the gospel. If you could have a sweeter, unified conversation with an unbeliever about the state of the world than you could have with a believer who views COVID differently than you, this is a sign that you have abandoned the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Dear church, you do not need to agree on these matters to have sweet fellowship, to meet with one another, to call one another up and to pray with one another, to rejoice in the unity of the gospel, to know each other, to encourage each other and to pray with one another. This is a gift. We don't earn this gift. It was given. It was purchased by the blood of Christ. Our job is to cling to it, to enjoy it, and to reject all other counterfeit unities, all other counterfeit tests of faith and tests of love for the Lord God. We are his servants. And oh, he gives us an unchanging standard, unchanging yoke, unchanging commands. His yoke is easy. His burden is light and unchanging, white-haired. Fourth and final point, the Lord himself faithfully preserves a remnant clinging to God's gracious covenant. This passage of scripture includes one of the sweetest historical events in scripture. If I'm going to picture one of the greatest events in redemptive history, I'm going to put this as one of them, a sweet picture, an image of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, the son of David, calling out and people coming to him. When a remnant separates themselves from the wicked and turns and returns to the son of David. We see this in 2 Chronicles 11 where we left off. 2 Chronicles 11 verse 13. And the priests and Levites who were all in Israel or in all Israel presented themselves to him from all places where they lived. For the Levites left their common lands and their holdings and came to Judah and Jerusalem. Because Jeroboam and his sons cast them out from serving as priests of the Lord. And he appointed his own priests for the high places, for the goat idols, and for the calves that he had made, and those who had set their hearts to seek the Lord God of Israel came after them from all the tribes of Israel to Jerusalem to sacrifice to the Lord, the God of their fathers. They strengthened the kingdom of Judah. And for three years, they made Rehoboam, son of David, secure, for they walked for three years in the way of David and Solomon. Rehoboam took his wife, Mahalath, the daughter of Jeremoth, and son, the son of David, and Abihel, the daughter of Eliab, the son of Jesse, and she bore him sons, Jeush, Shemariah, and Jeham. After her, he took Mekah, daughter of Absalom, who bore him Abijah, Atai, Ziza, and Shelameth. Rehoboam loved Mekah, the daughter of Absalom, and all his wives and concubines. He took 18 wives and 60 concubines and fathered 28 sons and 60 daughters. And Rehoboam appointed Abijah, the son of Mekah, as chief prince among his brothers, for he intended to make him king. And he dealt wisely and distributed some of, the, some of his sons through all the districts of Judah and Benjamin and all the fortified cities, and he gave them abundant provisions and procured wives for them. So King Jeroboam of that northern rebellious kingdom that rebelled against the son of David, he quickly turned the 10 tribes away from the Lord God. He didn't want them clinging to the covenant of the Lord God 
That meant that they had to go to the Lord's temple in Jerusalem, which was in Rehoboam's territory. And so he set up altars at Dan and Bethel, but the priests and Levites who were intentionally by the Lord sprinkled throughout all the tribes of Israel, they came pouring out of that new nation of Israel into the kingdom of Judah. And all who sought the, heart, sought the Lord with all their heart came with them. Now, I want you to notice it wasn't because Rehoboam was worthy. We just read of some of his unworthiness. He had lots of wives. He had favorite wives. It's gross. So they didn't think that Rehoboam was worthy. But they came because they knew the covenant of the Lord was sure. They knew that his covenant promises would endure through the faithlessness and weakness of his people. And they knew that the Lord had attached his covenant promises to two things, the son of David and the temple that the son of David built. All around the world would give way. People turned from the Lord and, and judgments from the Lord would come, but what remained was his covenant and the oath that the Lord, the, the God of Israel had sworn. And these priests and Levites and ordinary citizens, they clung to the, temp, the covenant promises about God, about the son of David, and about the son of David's temple. This is the work of God himself. We saw earlier that God made sure there would be people clinging to Rehoboam and to the covenant promises of God. And so it is today, brothers and sisters. Churches are dropping like flies by rejecting the word of God and the promises of God and the character of God and the good commands and the good designs of God. And it might feel like all is lost, but the Lord will. As he has always done before Christ and after Christ, he will keep a remnant to himself. He will keep all those who he purchased with his blood on the cross. Those whose burdens he bore on the cross. Those whose yoke he carried for 33 years of his life, keeping the law on their behalf. Those for whom he purchased rest with his own precious blood. He will be faithful to hold his bride. Not one body part will be lost because he himself is the head. He also tells us in Matthew 11, why his burdens are light and why his yoke is easy and why he gives his people rest. Did you notice why? The word for. Yes, he is Lord and master and he is king. Authority to tell us to do anything that he pleases. Why is his burden light and his yoke easy? He says, because his heart is gentle and lowly. He is gentle toward you, Christian. He's eager to forgive. He's eager to help. He's eager to bear your burdens and free you from them. He's not harsh with his own. He is sweet. He's affectionate and persistently caring and understanding. Unlike his ancestor Rehoboam, he sees his reign as for the glory of God and the good of his people who he loves affectionately. And you are that people if you reject the nonsense of being independent from him. If you reject the imaginary right to disobey him. If you reject the foolish idea that there is less burdens in rebelling against him. And if you trust in his life 
in his death for your sins, in his resurrection from the dead. And so you have rest because your son of David is perfectly righteous and he is anciently wise and he is gentle and lowly of heart. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we rejoice that you have, in our rebellion, Lord, you have sought us and you have gathered us by the announcement of the gospel of your son, that you have sent your son to bear the burdens of his people, to set us free from the yoke of slavery and to set us free even from the judgment from you that we deserve by taking it. Lord, we thank you that the Messiah that you have given us is not the one we deserve, but the one we needed. Where his yoke is easy and his burden is light, and toward his people whom he has purchased with his blood. His heart is gentle and lowly, and so we have rest for our souls. Lord, I pray that we would cling to him, that we would love his commands, not reject any of them and not any add any, because he is a good master. He is a good king. And Lord, I pray that you would make us that faithful remnant who cling to him no matter what, eagerly awaiting his return, and waiting patiently for him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.